So Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 to 9. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyk, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Great. Why don't we take 30 seconds just to welcome and greet each other while I'll get myself ready. So 30 seconds, turn around, greet each other. Okay, well, sorry to cut your conversation short. Um, We can continue that later when we have that amazing feast in the hall. I'm looking forward to that. I'm hungry. Maybe I'll try to keep it shorter, hey? Eat quicker. Um, Well, uh, let me welcome you again, especially a welcome to you if you're new to our church. I'm looking forward to get to know you more and love to meet up and catch up later over the meal. Well, if you've... um, come through the front door, you would have received an outline that might be helpful to you. Uh, what you'll notice that with our passage today is in fact quite straightforward, quite simple, quite straightforward, but it may be easy to understand, but what tends to be hard is applying it, let it affect our hearts. So we need to come to God in prayer and ask that he might change our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious and merciful God. You speak to us and you speak to us clearly. Uh, We pray, Lord, that as we consider your word tonight, though it may be easy to understand, we pray, Lord, that uh, through the work of your spirit, you might change our hearts, that that what we hear and learn may have an impact on our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm not sure if many of you have looked at the recent Australian census, the survey done last year in 2011. There are many interesting trends uh, that you can see from the census that are done. Now, I'm always interested in seeing the trends in, in religious affiliations, you know, who people claim to um, be, what they believe in. And I'm always interested in, to see the number of Australians who claim to be Christian. And I'm also interested in how many of them claim to be Presbyterians. And so if we look at the percentage of Australians who claim to be Christian, this is what we see. It's a bit small, but in 1911, so a bit over 100 years ago, 96% of Australians claimed to believe in God, a Christian God, the Christian God. And then in 2001, that dropped to only 68%. And in the most recent census, 100 years after that, uh, after 1911, This has dropped to now 61%. 
Now, of course, these numbers, it includes all Christians, and that is quite broad. You've got Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, and everything in between, Pentecostal, Charismatics, they're all bulked together in that Christian category. But I'm more interested in, in seeing how many are uh, Reformed Christians, Evangelical Christians, and, and though it's not limited to the Presbyterian denomination, um, um, interested to see what that's like. So the Presbyterians, what's the percentage there? Okay, well, this is what we get. In 1996, so the Presbyterians and Reformed Church, they're grouped together, 3.8% claim to be Presbyterians or Reformed. 2001, that dropped to 3.4%. And then in 2006, 3%. And the most recent census, 2.8%. We're actually seeing a gradual drop in the number of Australians calling themselves Christians, but also the number of Australians calling themselves Presbyterians or Reformed. Now, you might say this is only a drop in percentage. There has been an increase in the population of Australia, so the numbers might be about the same. But that's not true either. There's also a drop in numbers. So in 1996, the number was about 675,000 Australians. And now it's just under 600,000. And so in how many years is that? Is it 15 years? That looks right. Yeah, 15 years. It's uh, a drop of about 75,000 people claiming to be Presbyterians or Reformed. Now, that's the trend we're seeing. And it's a sad trend, don't you think? It's a sad trend. Now, obviously, there are many reasons for this trend that we see. It, it could be the, the trend just reflects the changes in migration patterns. More recently, um, well, since 1911 anyway, People, migrants have been coming from non-Christian backgrounds, people from Islamic backgrounds, people from Buddhist backgrounds, Hindu backgrounds. Now this trend, this drop, might also reflect the rise in the number of people claiming to have no religious affiliations. Now remember in 2001, there was this push for people to, for those who claim no religious affiliations, to put down Jedi on their census form. Do you remember that? to claim to be part of the Jedi religion. Well, that, that, that's a bit of... That's quite silly, but anyway, it shows the trend. People, more people claiming to be atheists, no religious affiliations. So that's probably what this trend reflects. But it might also reflect other things. This trend, this decrease in the number of Australians claiming to be Christian might be a reflection of how out of touch with society the church has become. Let's think about the Presbyterians. You know, we don't attack other churches, let's attack our own, right? Let's think about the Presbyterians. Presbyterians, you still believe in, in a book that was written thousands of years ago. How silly is that? Maybe you need to be a bit more in touch with the world. Presbyterians, you adhere to the Westminster Confession, written over 360 years ago. Perhaps a bit out of touch with society now. And, and, and isn't... Isn't it time to update things in Presbyterian churches? Perhaps, um, you know, get rid of the organ. Hey, how about that? I'm just kidding. I like the organ. I like the organ, so, you know, don't shoot me afterwards. Um, I can't play any musical instrument. I only can play the iPod. And so I admire anyone who can play any music instrument, including the organ. And Dawn is here tonight. I appreciate your work, Dawn. How about Presbyterians? How about thinking about changing... Um, the colour of the carpets. 
you know, to be a bit more in. None of this funny, I don't know what that symbol is. Well, there you go, someone knows. <laughs> Perhaps the church has become too old-fashioned. Is that why the census is reflecting that decrease in number of Christians who claim to, I mean, number of Australians who claim to be Christian? Or could this trend, could this drop, reflect something more serious about the church? Are there less people claiming to be Christian, less people attending churches because they have been hurt by the church? And we hear stories of these in the media, don't we? Especially in some church circles. You know, uh, people with authority and power abusing their power and abusing little children. That is such such heartbreaking news to hear. Could that be a reason why the number of people claiming to be Christians are decreasing? Or is it decreasing? Is it dropping because churches are filled with people who gossip? You know, they share prayer points, but in fact they're really just gossiping. Filled with churches with uh, churches filled with people who slander, who, um, who 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 fight with each other. A lot of infighting and and conflict. Now I'm not sure if you are aware, but there are many churches that start up because of conflicts within churches. They, they, there's a conflict and the church splits over it, and so you've got two churches. What a way to do church planning, have a conflict and split the church. Or, or is this drop a reflection of, of the fact that churches, perhaps, are filled with just grumpy whingers, complainers, people who are never content? Or is this drop a reflection of churches that are really just immoral, evil even, people who fill with people who are selfish and greedy and self-seeking, people who lie and hurt each other. You know, these are not very nice people to have around. So is that the case? Is that what's reflected in the census? Could those be the reasons for why there is this drop that we see in the census? Well, it goes without reason that these are the things that the church should not be known for. I'm sure you'll agree with me. These are the things that the church should not be known for. It should be the opposite. And that's what Paul focuses on today. And so we'll be, have a look at, look at our passage and we'll be working our way through it. Now, if you remember from last week, Paul left off um, the passage reminding the Philippians that they are citizens of heaven. Their home is in heaven, it's not on earth, and so they are to live like they belong to heaven. And now Paul comes to almost the end of his letter, and he gives them a series of exhortations, encouragements, on the way they are to live, to show that they are citizens of heaven. And so there are a series of five exhortations. So firstly, he he encourages them that they are to live as a united people. A united people, a united group. Now, the city of Philippi would have been multicultural. There would have been Romans there. There would have been Greeks. There would have been Jews there. They were diverse in their backgrounds, but they were to be as one man. They are to have the same faith, believe in the same God, the same Lord Jesus. They are to have the same mind. This is what we saw earlier in Philippians chapter 2. We are to have the mind of Christ. And what's that mind like? Well, it's a mind of humility, a mind that seeks the interests of others before our own. And so that was what, that's what Paul's encouraging here. 
And so we can see why Paul now makes a special appeal to two women. They're both Christians. They're both considered co-workers of Paul in the work of the gospel. But what's surprising here is that though they're co-workers with Paul in the work of the gospel, there, there is this unresolved conflict between two women. Now, I'm not sure if that's surprising, two women fighting. But there was a situation here. Now, we're not exactly sure what the conflict was over. Um, and I'm sure it will be a lot more serious than the colour of the carpets. And it's a conflict that was damaging the church. And not only that, it's sending the wrong message about the church, sending a wrong message to those around them. Outlookers, uh, um, outsiders looking into the church will see this is a messed up bunch of people. They're infighting. Aren't Christians meant to be loving, caring for each other, nice to each other? And so Paul is saying this issue between these two women in the church in Philippi must be solved. And so he appeals to the church to help them out. And so have a look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so Paul is urging this church to be a united church. It can't be a divided church. You need to be united. And that's how they will be in heaven. Remember, Paul's been reminding them that they are citizens of heaven. Heaven is their home. And when they get to heaven, there is just the one church, undivided, united and perfect. Now, in, in heaven, you're not going to get separation and segregation. It's not like you'll have the first-class Christians the ones who get the first-class tickets, the Abraham, the David, they're closer around the throne of God. They have a banquet. And then you get the business-class Christians. They're further behind. It's not bad, so that's probably the apostles. We'll leave them there. And then you've got the economy-class Christians, probably you and me. We just get a little TV and airline food. No banquet, no heavenly banquet. You see, it's not like that. In heaven, no division. United, all united in perfect church, perfect in every way. And so Paul's first exhortation here is to be united. Division is not on. Secondly, Paul appeals to them to rejoice always. Rejoice always. Now, appeal is sort of like a a soft word. He's in fact commanding them to rejoice always. It's a command. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, I wonder how strange that sounds. Imagine using this command with your children if you have them. I would love to try this out. They're fighting. They're they're stealing each other's toys. They're crying. Now, that only happens when Yvonne's looking after them. They're throwing tantrums. They're being naughty. No, that's not true. But they do do that a lot. And for me, to whip out this command, kids, rejoice already. Doesn't make sense, does it? Sounds a bit strange. Now, why did Paul command such a thing? I mean, how is it possible for Christians to rejoice all the time? He's saying always, all the time, rejoice. How is this possible? Are Christians to 
superficially be happy all the time, be nice, smiling, even if they don't feel it. Is that what it's about? Well, it can't be that, is it? Because that would be fake. Now, when I, when I come down with that serious and deadly man flu, you've heard of that? Worse than a common flu, <laughs> it's deadly. I'm in bed all day, sleeping, can't do any work, only wake up to eat and then I go back to bed. How can I be happy when I'm with that affliction? How can you be happy? But on a more serious note, how can Christians be happy all the time? How is that possible? I remember my first car accident. It was a total write-off. It was hard to be happy about that. I remember during university when I heard that my uncle died, tragically. It was hard to be happy about that. When we were trying for children, we had a miscarriage between Esther and Caleb. It was hard to be happy about that. How can Christians, how, how can Paul in his right mind command us to rejoice always? So what did he mean by it? Well, you see, Paul, he didn't mean a happiness that was dependent on circumstances. Because it makes sense that when tragic things happen, when sad things happen, to feel sad, to grieve, that is right, that is fitting, it makes sense. But Paul's not talking about the, the happiness that changes with circumstances. You see, Paul, he is talking about the deep inner joy, the deep inner joy in our hearts that's not dependent on what happens to us, what happens around us. It depends on God, depends on who God is and how God has acted in love through Christ for us, a God who never changes. And that's why Paul, who was in prison at this stage, had so many things to be unhappy with, but he can still rejoice in his heart because God of the Bible, the God of the Bible, is his God. The God of the Bible loves him and has saved him through Christ. And so Paul, he could genuinely rejoice Rejoice all the time. And that was his command to the Philippians. Rejoice always. So that was the second exhortation. Now the third one. Paul commands the Philippians to be gentle, to make their gentleness known to all men. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now the word translated gentleness carries the idea of having a forbearing spirit, being gracious. And so Paul did not mean here that Christians are to be you know, weaklings and sissies and just be abused and just a step over. No, Paul was urging the Christians here to be gracious in how they deal with each other, to be forbearing. And so even if I've been wronged, and it's not really a serious matter, to let it be, to be forgiving, to be forbearing, to not want to seek revenge. That's perhaps the best thing to happen in many situations. Little things, let it be. Forgive, forbear. And that was perhaps something that these two women needed to hear. To, uh, while, while they were fighting with each other, they perhaps needed to be more gracious to each other, to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And Paul's reason... Well, he says here that the Lord is near. The Lord is near. You see, when injustices or things that happen to us, you know, if they're not resolved now, the Lord will come one day and there will be perfect justice. 
all will be made right. And so this third exhortation, be gentle always. Now the fourth one. Paul now exhorts the Philippians to not be anxious about anything, but in all situations, big or small, to bring their concerns to God. Verse 6. And this is a great verse, a great one to memorise. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. It's a wonderful verse on prayer. A wonderful verse. It shows the power of prayer. And it shows the place that prayer should be in the life of Christians. See, Paul himself had every reason to be anxious. Just think about his life at this time. He was in prison. He could have faced the the Roman Colosseum and faced animals and lions. He, He could have been burnt at the stakes like so many Christians under the Emperor Nero. He had so many things to be anxious about. But what was his response here? He was telling the Philippians, don't be anxious. Turn to God in prayer. Turn to God in prayer. And notice that they are to come to God with a thanksgiving attitude. That's the attitude of prayer. But then we think about Paul again. What did he have to give thanks to God for? He was in chains. Thank God for the chains. Thank God for the prison food. Didn't sound like he had much to thank God for. But then let me remind you of how he started this letter. So turn your Bibles to chapter 1, verses 3, 3 to 5. This is how he started this letter. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. You see, even in prison, though he was in chains, he had every reason to thank God for because of the Philippians. Now notice what what the result of this prayer is. Verse 7. It now says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. And what does that verse mean? Well, the word guard here is a military term. It's a term used to describe a detachment of soldiers who are to guard and protect a city. That's how the word is usually used. But he is used to describe what the peace of God is like. And so the peace of God is like a garrison of soldiers guarding the thoughts and feelings of Christians, protecting them from feelings of anxiety, giving them peace in their hearts. And you see, that was exactly the case for Paul. It's just beyond reason, beyond understanding why he could rejoice and have peace while being in prison, while facing the death penalty. But he could because of this verse, because the peace of God was guarding his heart and mind. And so that's the fourth exhortation, to pray always. And finally, what's the final one? Well, Paul now exhorts the Philippians to follow Paul's example, to think of good things and to do good things always. The final verses, 8 and 9. Have a look. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
Whatever you have learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the Christian community is not like uh, it's not meant to be like the one I mentioned at the beginning. It's meant to be a group seeking to do good, who loves to do good. And that has been how Christians have been known throughout much of history. Now, it, um, as, since the time of Jesus, Christians have uh, strived to do good. And if you think about it, it is the Christians who have given the world the hospitals, the charities, the schools, the universities as a Christian initiative. It's, it is Christians who found organisations like the Red Cross, quite obviously Red Cross, the Salvation Army, even YMCA, that was a Christian organisation, World Vision, and even the RSPCA, that was started by Christians. It's because Christians were concerned and have always been concerned for doing good, loving good, and doing them, seeking to look after the disadvantaged, the poor, the needy. And in the first few centuries, for about 300 years, Christians were well known for their social concern. Now, for, the, for about the th- first 300 years, before Constantine took over the empire, Christians were under state-sanctioned persecution. It was law that Christians be persecuted, and many of them were martyred. So during that time, thousands of Christians were killed. But despite what was coming their way, they, they should have been bitter and angry with that, they continued to care and look after the disadvantaged, the poor, the needy. Back then, there wasn't any social welfare, wasn't any public hospitals, no Centrelink back then. Christians took on the job to do good. They loved doing good. They thought about doing good, and they did it. And because of such loving actions, many, many non-Christians, many pagans, saw what Christians were like and were converted because of the actions of Christians. They couldn't understand why this group who were persecuted would care for the needy, would care for the disadvantaged. And so many were converted because of the good works of Christians. And so that's Paul's final exhortation, to do good, to do good. So that's our passage. As I said, it's quite straightforward, quite straightforward, easy to understand. But I think the test is putting it into practice. And it's quite straightforward to understand the five exhortations that Paul gives to the church in Philippi. As we read the word of God today, the word of God which is living and active, these are the exhortations for our church today. To be united always, rejoice always, be gentle always, pray always, and do good always. Five things. And so my question tonight for all of us, my question is, How true are these things for our church today? St. Stephen's Presbyterian Church in 2012. Are these things true for us? If, If a visitor comes, and we do get visitors who come, when they see how we interact, how we act, what we say, will they think that this is true for us? What are your thoughts? Are we our church that has segregation, division, conflict? Or are we a church that really reflect what heaven is like? 
Now, I would like to say that this church has some very wonderful things about it. And that is one thing, is the diversity. We've got a great diversity of ages, from babies up to 80, 90, and pretty much almost everyone in between, and a good spread. Not only a diversity of ages, but a diversity of cultures. Let's think about the people in our church. You've got Sri Lankan, Dutch, South African, Scottish, Irish, English. Uh, what else do we have here? Indian, Russian. A few Australian, of course, Australians as well. Chinese. There's a Brunei family in the morning. Sudanese family as well. And then you've got the Tasmanians. <laughs> no, they're Australians, of course. We love the Tasmanians. <laughs> and that's a wonderful picture of what heaven is like, isn't it? People from all different tongues and background praising and worshipping the one God. No conflict, unity. All in unity. A group so diverse, but a group that will be so willing to spend time together, to meet each other, to share in meals, invite people over to pray for each other. It's a wonderful picture of what heaven will be like. Unity. Everyone's so diverse, but united. And I wonder how many of us would do those things if it wasn't for the gospel of Christ. If we weren't Christians, would we be united in that way? I'm sure we wouldn't. If it wasn't for the unity that the gospel brings. And so what we see is a beautiful reflection of heaven. And so if you think about that, you'll see how shocking it is if there is conflict, if there is division in our church. And so my question is, are there any? Are there any? Are you in conflict with someone in church? Is there someone in church that you avoid speaking to? You avoid even looking at? Is there someone in church that you have something against? Is there someone in church that you have a conflict with that needs to be resolved? Because if there is, then we need to heed Paul's words tonight. We need to resolve those conflicts. We need to resolve them. If it takes more than forbearing, being gracious, it might mean asking for forgiveness, repenting ourselves. And perhaps if it's a big enough issue, like the church in Philippi, you might need someone else's help, Christ's help. But the church cannot go on with division within the church. Citizens of heaven are a united people. Now what about the next exhortation? Is this a church filled with people who rejoice always? Is that what characterises us? You know, when we sing in church... Is it joy that fills our hearts? Or is it sadness? You know, for some of us, it might be sadness because we can't sing, but is it joy inside? Or when people walk into this church, what's the vibe they get? Is it happiness and joy? Or is it sadness? Is it a, an unhappy place filled with discontented whingers and complainers? Is that what this church is like? Now, this is not to say that when tragic things happen, when sad things happen, that we shouldn't grieve. We should. 
We should grieve with each other. But we need to think about rejoicing in our hearts. Do we understand what Paul says? That our rejoicing, our joy in our hearts is not dependent on circumstances, but dependent on God and who he is and what he's done for us. Now what I've found helpful is that great Sunday school that I learned in Sunday school, that song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Not dependent on circumstances, in all circumstances, knowing that Jesus loves me. And it's something I had to learn. You know, when things go wrong, it's um, that, that car accident, that first write-off, it was, it was a sad time. That miscarriage, it was a sad time. We had to come to learn, Yvonne and myself, that despite what happens around us, or what happens to us, just like that song, Jesus loves me. I am loved by the king of the universe. That shall bring joy to my heart. And so citizens of heaven are to rejoice always. Now what about that next exhortation, gentleness? Now in the eyes of the world, when they look at Christians and the church, is it gentleness that they see? Or is it a mean bunch of nasty people? You know, always fighting with each other. And I suspect that's what the world sees with you know, what, what happens in the Anglican churches, fighting here and there and, and uh, many churches. But it can't be like that, can it? It needs to be gentleness that characterises us, to be gentle with each other, to be forbearing, to be gracious to one another. And, and if you haven't worked out yet, it's actually how relationships work. It's how good relationships work where friends or partners are forbearing and gracious with one another. And let me let you in on this secret. It's how a good marriage works. Those of you not married yet, getting married, it's how a good marriage works, to be gracious and forbearing with one another. If it's not too serious, let it go. Let it be. Now, when a husband and wife are forbearing and gracious with one another, that's a good thing, and that makes the relationship works. And so with Yvonne and myself, sometimes I say things I don't mean. You look huge in that dress. I don't really mean it. She's beautiful. But with a forbearing spirit, a gracious heart, she's going to let that go. She knows I don't mean it. She's not going to laugh back at me and say, oh, you and that big head, you and that funny haircut. You know, that's, that's not the right attitude. So forbearing, gentleness, it's a good characteristic of any relationship, and it must be one of the church. So citizens of heaven are to be gentle always. And the next one, when the world looks at us, are we an anxious, stressful, worrying bunch of people? You know, anything that comes our way, the exams, the essays, the job interview, the, um, the deadlines at work, the sicknesses and illnesses, when they come our way, do we make it out to be the end of the world, that that is so bad and I'm so stressed out because of it? We make it bigger than what it really is. Or are we a church that knows the proper place and the proper power of prayer, that in all things we turn to God and with the attitude of thankfulness? If we think that our situation is too small to bring towards God, what do you think that says? It says that God doesn't really care. God doesn't really love us enough. 
or if we think that our situation is just too big of a problem to bring to God. What does that say? Well, it says that God is not powerful enough, that God can't do anything about it. But you see, that's not the case. Because the God of the Bible, the God we believe, loves and cares for us just like a father. Little things he wants to hear. And God, the God of the Bible, is powerful. He's powerful. There's no problem too big for him to handle. And so God, like our Heavenly Father, is concerned with us, loves us, wants to hear all our prayers, small or big. You know, it's just the way I feel towards my kids. I want them to share with me small or big things. You know, one day they might think dating is a small thing, but to me, I want to hear about that. And so just our, as you know, a human father wants to hear what's going on with their kid's life, our Heavenly Father even more so. And so citizens of heaven are to not be anxious, but to turn to God in prayer. And finally, are we a church that strives to do good, strives to do good not only for each other, but for the community? It's what Christians have been known for throughout much of history. It's what needs to continue, that Christians are to be do-gooders, Christians are loved to do good. That is what we are to be known for. So what do you think? How does our church stack up? How does our church stack up? Now in four years' time, in 2016, there will be the next census. What will the trend tell us then? Will there be less than 61% of Australians who claim to be Christian? Will there be less than 2.8% of Australians who claim to be Presbyterians? Well, we don't know what the result will be. We have no idea, but it's out of our control, isn't it? But what we do have control over, under God and in God's mercy, is what happens in this church. We don't have control on what happens in the census and the trends, but we do have control under God in what happens in this church. And so let us all make sure that the numbers of Christians will not drop in this church because we are a divided bunch, because we are a sad and unhappy bunch, because we're a rough and mean bunch, because we're an anxious bunch of people, or because we're just purely evil and immoral. But let us... Let us be a church that even when an atheist looks at us, we'll have to admit that we are in fact who we claim to be, citizens of heaven. Let's pray.